Welcome everyone to the Caribbean Science Fiction Network, a celebration of all things fantasy, folklore, speculative fiction, and of course, science fiction. Portals, for me, I was trying to explain my own, my three realms, so to speak. So it represents a gateway. Today I have with me Trisha Chin, the writer of the collection Tabanka and Other Stories. It's actually her debut book. So Trisha, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to be talking about this new collection. Thank you very much for inviting me here to participate in your podcast, Jarrell. The first thing I want to ask is, is intriguing to me because you're not a writer by profession. You're still writing this book and you're capturing the spirit of Trinidad and Tobago folklore so well. To talk us through this process of creating the collection, like how were you able to tap into to these various um, these various expressions of Trinidadian folklore? When the pandemic came around, came around last year, I didn't have a lot to do. So on a Saturday, normally I'm very busy. I go hiking. I do anything I can Saturday and Sunday. But last year I had nothing to do. And um, my brother asked me to, you know, maybe I should put down some of my experiences that I would have had when I walked the Camino de Santiago. So... I started to do that, to write about my Camino de Santiago experiences, and I ended up with Tabanco. That was my first story ever. I mean, you make it sound so easily like I just published my first story. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, so why folklore? Like, what was the reason behind this? Uh, because I noticed that the majority of the, these characters in the collection, at least the early part of it, it's, it's for the most part folklore, if not all of it. So... Why folklore? Um, I grew up in a very rural part of Trinidad and Tobago. I grew up in a place called Brasso in central Trinidad. A lot of people don't know it. I'm sure you probably know about, everybody knows about Brasso Seco, but nobody knows about Brasso in central. And um, my grandmother, she was a very um, big influence and is a very big influence in my life. Sometimes when we didn't have current, because it was the 80s, and every now and then, you know, Tianzek would forget about us and cut off the current, right? <laughs> <laughs> so when that happened, my granny would say, oh, let's take a moonlight stroll, because it was me and my brother and my granny in the house, generally. So we would take a moonlight stroll to visit her, her younger sister, who lived about maybe... 300 meters away because it was a village i grew up in a village and a good bit of the people in the village they were related to us so we'd just be walking down the road and you know my grandmother she was the first in her family and she was the one who she brought a lot of these characters alive for me so she would be like she would talk about the duans she would talk about the sukuya the lajablas papa Bwa. so i had a lot of stories from growing up and then, of course, I read Greek mythology for entertainment, you know, because everybody, when they, um, when you hit that standard five, form one, you know, you start reading about Zeus and all of these people. I just always had those interests. So I guess it was something personal to me. That's why it's easy for them to come to me, so to speak, the characters. It's easy for me to imagine these characters. You know, at multiple moments in the collection, I'm reading these folklore characters and, you know, the issue of humanity comes up a lot. Like what, what makes what makes us human versus these folklore characters who may not look human, but they actually are portrayed in very human ways with human desires, 
They have fears, motivations, very strong emotions. Was this topic of humanity important for you or were you simply just tapping into your own personal experience of those folklore stories? You are probably, you're probably the second person, actually probably more than the second person to mention the humanity in the folklore characters. To me, I suppose it was more an unconscious thing that I did because the characters in folklore and anywhere in Trinidad and Tobago, the characters are characters in all villages. So for example, um, the duens that everyone talks about, those are children that didn't get to be baptized. So they could have been your cousin, you know, um, the Sukuya is the lady down the road, the lager who is the old man up the road, you know, so everybody know the village Obia man and the lady to go by to make things, you know, right. So to me, our folklore characters have always been part of our community, so to speak. I mean, not really, not really an accepted part of the community, but it is something that it is not so far apart for us. So, for example, um, for example, Greek mythology. You know, recently, um, I like the concept of Kronos. I like Kronos as a as a deity, and of course, as you know, Kronos is um he's the father of time, more or less. And he he devours his children and they in turn kill him and rule in his stead. So, but the concept of Greek gods, they are so outside of our consideration and they are so far away. But they also have, they have human tendencies to a certain extent, yes. But in general, their broader concept broader concepts are just beyond our comprehension. But for us, I feel as if that's not us. For me, folklore is something that it resides with you. It is close to you and um, it is a character that you can, you can relate to. Tied to that idea of what it means to be human is what I, what I, what I recognize is a multiple sort of experience of transformation in, in the stories. And not just physical ones, like you mentioned, um, with, with the twins, but also I feel, and tell me if I'm reading too much into this, but I also feel that there are sort of ideological transformations as well as emotional ones. And I want to ask you, how do you see these acts of transformation as tying into your overall motivation for writing these stories? Well, in some of these stories, the transformations are very clear. So, for example, someone can transform into a sukuya. But also within the stories, you can see people, um, the same sukuya, she made, she made choices. So some of her choices are obvious. And then there are other people who, even though their family heritage may have been one thing, so for example, Master Lee, his children somehow did not, did not inherit it. And they ended up in a totally different um. A totally different sphere so to me transformation is something that you see not only with yourself as an individual but it is something that i see um, in terms of families even in a very small society that doesn't seem to change but to me there are many things changing and we just don't always recognize it so this is probably how transformation ended up being part of these stories and for almost um a good few of the characters, there is some some level of transformation. Transformation is a, a sort of a 
fantasy trope. You know, you, you associate um, someone or something being able to transform as something outside of possibility than human possibility. So it so it ties in really well with 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 building these characters who are who are as human or, or even more human than some of the human characters. Um, so so I see that fitting in really nicely. Uh, I want to come back to that point you made about Master Lido and the and the and the heritage because that's some, something I want to ask you later on. But when you mentioned walking through the 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 village um, and and you know being told stories that that really made sense in terms of the other question I want to ask you, which is in this collection, the stories are as much about the natural environment, the the, the surroundings. As they are about the, the 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 characters, and you know it makes sense now when you say it because your writing is informed by that um that immersion into the environment. And I want to ask you, why did you feel it was necessary to make the flora, um, you know, the frangipani, the immortel, the pui, and of course the silk cotton tree? Why did you feel it necessary to make this so central to almost all the stories? Well. My brother asked me, he told me to write about my experiences working in the Camino de Santiago. He was like, oh, I'm sure Trinidadians or maybe other people want to hear about, you know, a Trini walking the Camino. I was like, uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> because that is a very formal sort of writing. Uh, mm-hmm. I should have, ideally, I should have kept a diary every day or something like that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, of course, even if you don't keep a diary every day writing, you do have a sort of diary in your mind. Yeah of what happened to you while you were walking this mm-hmm. this 24 day pilgrimage across the top of northern Spain. But I walked that pilgrimage by myself and I didn't know if um if I would finish. And it is seven hundred and ninety kilometers continuous mm. walking for oh. twenty four days. That is how I did it. Oh. So Sometimes I would be on stretches of forest by myself and I would be tired and wondering why am I so crazy? What am I really doing here? Mm. And you know, people know that you are thinking these thoughts. Mm. And sometimes you would see these little signs appear um Yamaun taxi, you know, call a taxi and they would have the number <laughs> they would have the number for the taxi. <laughs> Luckily for me, my cell phone was not working, so I didn't have a cell phone with me, so I couldn't yammer on taxi, right? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but um, when I was really tired, I would sometimes I would um, I would just take a, I would stop, you know, just take a breath, look around, look at the um, everything that is in front of me, mm. and if I was if I was feeling a little low in terms of energy, I would touch a tree. Yeah. You know, I know this is sounding a little bit like I'm a folklore character now, <laughs> but yeah, yes. Yeah. I would touch the tree and it would kind of calm me and center me and make me feel okay. I'm ready to continue. And I started doing that like anywhere I visited, anywhere I traveled, I would touch surfaces. So I would touch trees, I would touch stones like if there were stone walls mm-hmm. i would feel the textures um if there was moss i would touch the moss and of course you know this is very against the traditional trinidadian upbringing yeah? <laughs> you know because your mother would tell you 
see but don't touch yeah you know but here i was in the people country touching everything well not everything <laughs> but you know inanimate objects that that were open to the public like trees and stuff yeah so for me um i really enjoy i personally enjoy the natural environment and i do think that um i think maybe even now in this year of covid people are finally realizing how important it is to to look around and to learn and understand more about nature and i think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from our natural environment and this is probably why these trees are so important and so central to all of the stories because they are important to me so they've they've ended up in these stories And just to tie back to that previous previous talk about the transformation, not just with the human characters, but also the, the, the inanimate ones. So, so, so that is also exciting to, to, to witness. And when you say, you know, you touch the tree, it, it, in this story, the trees are real. They, they, they talk and they have emotions and they, and they transform. Um, so, so, you know, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fluidity. Um, in in this in the collection that that sort of runs through the the characters and the environment um and 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 you you sort of bring that to life um and as you just yeah. as you describe it you, you you that's informed by by your own experiences um just one one point to note here Gerald. Mm -hmm. um the trees did not talk back to me when i was walking <laughs> <laughs> well that's good to, to know clear to your readers, <laughs> sorry to your listeners well that's good no to know trees spoke to me <laughs> I, I mean that could be another science fiction talk for no, another time <laughs> but staying staying with the staying with the trees there's one point when where basil tells celine the, the trees were portals and i could not um overlook that 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 line because i just find it tying in so well with this this podcast about science fiction because you make that connection very clear um that i am trying to make over the course of how many episodes um in this podcast but you make it very clear that the trees are portals so in that one line you're blending the folklore and the science fiction do you see the connection in the same way that i do or are you using portals in a different sense and why portals portals for me i was trying to explain my own my tree realms so to speak so it represents a gateway it is a place where basil could communicate and meet and interact with persons on the surface so in terms of science fiction this is this set of stories is yes it is more folklore but to me i i'm not entirely sure you could always separate folklore and science fiction because there must be some sort of there's some sort of inter interplay between the two and also um fantasy as well so folklore fantasy and science fiction i think they are within the same family even though these stories are not set in like a very strange strange um place there are things that really escape description or are in the realm of the fan fantastic so to speak that would make it into science fiction you know so it's not like a, um it's not a dune but it's also 
it's also things that cannot be explained by regular laws of physics or anything else. So for me, the portals, um, it was supposed to be that Basil, Basil was able to be in present in the tree. You could walk, you could participate with Basil, you could communicate with Basil while he's in the tree. And um, you can also use it as another means to, um, to go other places as well. I like the connection because, you know, oftentimes we think of folklore as 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 backward and science fiction, t- traditional science fiction as future or forward. So there's this, we, we dissociate the folklore from the science fiction because we perceive the folklore as, as backward. Um, so, 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 you know, what you're saying about, about the connection, I, I think, I think I absolutely agree. And this is something that that I'm trying to get at with the podcast, that, that folklore is scientific and science fiction in the sense of, as you say, these these things that cannot be explained. There's also a level of superstition in the collection, in particular the story with Master Lee um, and, and the Wei Wei. I want to tie this in with your previous point about the heritage and family life um, because it is, it, it is one of these other central strands in this collection that is the importance of family life and heritage and i want you to say more about this with with particular reference not giving too much away of course but with reference to master lee well the superstition you're talking about is um is very real and this way way which is now its modern version of um playway i've heard people say are not playing by x shop because X shop is not, um, that's not a lucky shop. You don't win nothing in that shop, you know? Or if you get up this morning and you see a frog, you're going to play a certain mark, things like that. So um, with regard to Master Lee, what he inherited, he would pass on. This isn't exactly what happened to him. So to me, I think it is something that, well, I see constantly that um, people come and they immigrate they immigrate to different countries, but they do not always end up in the circumstances that they expect. So Master Lee is, um, he would have been an immigrant from Canton from like late, mid to late 19th century. It's an interesting story and not one that people really um, would consider really. Because when we speak about the Chinese presence in Trinidad, it's a short and also a hidden story. As we close the, the, this talk, I want, to, I want you to, to describe that trajectory of the collection and how that relates to the various connections you see throughout the story. So, you know, where does this interconnection speak to our, our sense of a Caribbean identity? You're bringing all these, or you're weaving this web of these interconnected stories that um, these common themes of, of, of humanity, of, of the environment, um, of, of decisions being made, of transformations, you're bringing these all together. And there's a thread that you're weaving throughout. The stories, they span, they span a century. So they span early 19th century to the end of the 19th century. And all Caribbean islands, we have things that are similar and things that, of course, you know, are different because every island is different. 
But some of the things that are the same are things we can't help, things like discovery and colonialism. And then with colonialism, you had the Atlantic slave trade, you had indentureship, you had immigration, and you had, of course, as well, similar systems of governance. So a lot of these stories, they would have touched on almost all of these things, except for, of course, discovery. They would have touched on almost all of these things. And these are stories, these are themes that are present in almost every Caribbean island. There are so many things that we share that there is, there is in reality, a Caribbean identity. And even though, you know, we, we don't really take it seriously and we say the only thing that keeps us together is cricket and things like that, we do have, in the Caribbean, we have a sort of shared humanity that you will not necessarily find in other places. So we have, when I say humanity, I mean more a sort of gentleness and kindness. I do pick up on that though. I mean, I was rooting for Tabanka. <laughs> that this idea of of the gentle side of the of the of the of the kindness. I think I think from as early as that story, that first story, you're already tapping into that that inner humanity that that we tend to take for granted, um, and and still that which is common to all of us. So that that story really set the tone for this 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 collection's entire exploration of humanity so so i think you do a good job with the interconnection um and making those making you know drawing that line throughout the throughout the collection Trisha, we've come to the end of the talk i, I want to thank you so much for, for doing this i you know you've thrown up a lot of ideas and you know there's still more to look at in the collection so i just want to encourage everyone all our listeners to 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 get that book it's available on amazon you can um add trisha on instagram trinidad f-o-l-k-l-o um and on twitter um chin underscore t-r-i to get more info on on the book and of course check us out check out the podcast on apple podcasts spotify anchor.com breaker uh, there's Radio Public. There's so many platforms, so check us out. Add us on Twitter and on Instagram, Caribbean SFNet, to get more updates. Um, Trisha, any final words for all listeners? Um, I just want to say thank you so much, Cheryl, for having me. This was really incredible and a lot of fun. And I really do hope, you know, people, if you are not prepared to buy the book, you know, just take a little look at my Instagram, you know, to get your feet wet and see if you're interested. Excellent. Get your feet wet. What's so wrong with that? Okay. <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening and I will see you next time or you can listen to me next time on the Caribbean Science Fiction Network. Bye.